Hi, and welcome to the RCH Kids Health Info podcast, the podcast for parents about common child health concerns. I'm Dr. Lexi Frydenberg, paediatrician and your host for today, and I'm joined by my colleague and good friend, fellow paediatrician, Dr. Anthea Rhodes. Welcome, Anth. Thanks, Lexi. Today, we're going to be talking about autism, what it is, how you get a diagnosis, and who you might go to for help. And we've got a great guest joining us, so stay tuned. From the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, this is the Kids Health Info Podcast. So today's topic is autism or autism spectrum disorder, otherwise known as ASD. And it's a really complex topic. So today we're going to be talking about what parents and families need to look out for if they're worried their child might have autism and where to seek help to really try and understand it a bit more. Autism is a term that most of you as parents will have heard of. It's a lot more mainstream these days and there's actually quite a lot of articles and TV shows about it. But because it's a spectrum, there's huge variation and I think that's what we want to really unpack today. And what are some of the common questions you get asked as a paediatrician about autism? Yeah, look, Lexi, I think as a developmental paediatrician, one of the most common referrals I get is about, does my child have autism? And by the time a parent is coming to see me with that question, they've been thinking about this for a while and there might be other people in that child's life who have raised some questions or concerns about the way the child's functioning or interacting with others that put that question out there, or is it autism? What I think is really important and something that we'll talk about today is the way children behave and interact outside of autism is across a huge spectrum as well. So often these children might have characteristics or what we call traits that are a bit like those we see on the spectrum, but that doesn't necessarily mean they have a diagnosis of autism. And also parents don't necessarily feel that getting a diagnosis is really what they want for their child. So lots of emotional conversations. It can be really challenging for people to think about autism for their kids. And I'm, I'm looking forward today to getting stuck into some of those questions with our expert. Absolutely, and So we're very lucky to be joined today by a very experienced paediatrician, Dr. Deb Marks, who works in our specialist autism team here at RCH. Welcome, Deb, and thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Deb, let's get straight into it. What is autism? Autism is a developmental condition, and the key features of it fall into two different areas. So one area of concern is what we call social communication, a fancy word, but what it talks about is how children understand other people and how they use communication and play skills to get along with other people. And the second area is is an area of repetitive behaviour and repetitive thinking. And in that area, we often will think about autism when we see people engaging in things like repeated movements or getting stuck with repeating something again and again in terms of their conversation, or maybe in terms of their play, and that need for sameness. So those are the two key areas, and these areas present differently at different ages. And I think it's really important, Deb, for us to pick up on this idea of the spectrum here. So you've talked about those two key features, so the way children interact with others, so that social interaction and the the, the strong preference, if you like, for repetitive behaviours. Of course, Kids and adults can all have difficulties or, or tendencies across both of these aspects of their behaviour. So how does that fit? Yeah. So for kids on the spectrum, 
the main issue is that these things have become problematic for them. So they're impacting on their daily living. They're impacting on the way they can navigate community events like going to kindergarten, going to school, and how they relate to their family. So autism has to be a condition that impacts on function. And I think an interesting thing just to pick up on there while we think about recent times having been um, in COVID and for lots of kids and families having had a really different way of life for a while, particularly here in Victoria, that has meant that some of those challenges haven't existed in the same way for children. So certainly in the families I see, for children who might be on the spectrum or, or were possibly on the spectrum and it's not quite clear yet, the fact that they haven't had to go out there and interact with the kindergarten or be part of those events where they might find it difficult or challenging to, um, I guess, behave in the ways that is typical for our community has meant that perhaps it hasn't been so obvious or maybe they've actually had an, an easier time lately. That's certainly true. I think a lot of our children have found it very easy to communicate online and, and often they prefer that online uh, method of, of getting together with other people. Um, and But I think families probably have had the opportunity to notice how some children might be a bit more rigid and might be wanting things to be done a particular way. And for a lot of families, they've begun to appreciate what their child's teacher might be up against, um, topics that they're not interested in. Because one of the hallmarks of having autism is that difficulty in seeing another person's perspective. And so not understanding that you might have to big part of a classroom and a part of an education process, even if it's not really your preferred activity at the time. So going along with someone for the sake of it is something that I think is a difficulty and one of which that online learning has certainly presented as a difficulty too. Yes. But on the flip side of that, interestingly, in COVID, because our younger children haven't been um, exposed to playgroups and mother's group and going to the park and socialising, a lot of the skills that you normally learn from watching other children play as a youngster haven't been there. So it's going to be a really interesting time and difficult time, I think, for parents coming out of COVID, coming out of lockdown to, to really get their children back into social interaction and watch what happens. I think let's um, talk a little bit about the spectrum. It, there's quite a difference between children who um, have what we call severe features of autism and they're often diagnosed a bit younger and children or adolescents, even adults, who are at the other end of the spectrum and often get diagnosed in the older years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, what you've said is certainly true. Um, often the children who present in the young age are presenting more with core features of autism and I'll talk a bit about that mm -hmm. but the people who present in older years often present more with the mental health problems that can come up in autism so difficulties with anxiety with um, fitting into the community with perhaps developing behaviours that are more challenging um, that are the presenting signs so if we think about the younger folk first um, the more likely things that people will will present with would be delays in language or difficulties getting along with other children. And delays in language occur in a number of different conditions, but in autism, the hallmark of the delay in language is a difficulty in, in understanding how to use language. So some children might be able to label things very clearly or might have a range of understanding of what objects are, but not be able to use that to communicate simple things like being able to ask for help 
or make a request for something or to get their parents or their siblings to show an interest in what they're doing. So they're not directing their language in the same way. And often that goes along with things like not using their eye contact, not using gestures to kind of soup up their 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 understanding of what's going on when they're talking to somebody. Absolutely. And I often have parents come in and say, but my child can count to 100 um, and they can you know, sing the whole song of the Wiggles off TV. But it's the use of communication and language with other people that's really, really important. And I think Pointing is a really important gesture that whether a child sort of follows your point, whether they're interested in what you're interested in or talking about, and whether they're trying to show you things as well. So it's really a lot more than just a delay in language. It's really that communication. And I think this might be a good point to also talk about the um, the diagnosis or label of Asperger's. So this is more of a historical diagnosis now. Perhaps, Deb, you can talk to us a bit about what Asperger's actually is because it's still very much a commonly used term and I, I know a lot of families feel like they can identify more with that. They know what that sort of means to them. What What is that when you're thinking about autism? Yeah, so Asperger's syndrome was kind of created as an idea around about the same time that autism was created as an idea, but they were created in different worlds, if you like. Um, and so the two grew up in parallel And it wasn't until the 1980s when both of those conditions were seen to be linked. So what we used to understand as autism talks about the young people and and usually it's not the preschoolers, it's usually school-age kids all the way through to adults who have really good learning skills and who have often a very high vocabulary and, and good practical communication in terms of what they want and what they need, but not necessarily in terms of how to get along with other people. So they're they're people with autism who, if you like, uh, have a higher intelligence if you start to measure that. Yeah, so we sometimes hear or use the term high-functioning autism, and that really is an equivalent concept to the the other label or diagnosis. I think the word label is not one that we necessarily want to use, but it does get used a lot. So the other term, if you like, of Asperger's syndrome, those two things are really the same um, with different names. Is that right? They're definitely the same. What we're now moving to do is to recognise and respect the input of adults with autism. And we know that often parents would like to think of their children as being people with autism, but often adults with autism see them the autism first and they prefer to be thought of as autistic people. So today we'll use a variation of these terms and different terminology, but we're talking about autism spectrum disorder in its entirety. And so, Deb, you've mentioned a few of the features of autism and really those fundamental um, aspects that that are underlying this condition. If a parent is at home and you might be listening thinking the reason you've tuned into this is because you're worried that your child might be on the spectrum or perhaps a kindergarten teacher or an extended family member has said to you that they think there might be signs of autism here – Perhaps you've Googled something. You know, often I find with family members, parents, when they come to see me, they've been worried about something like the fact that their child is obsessed with a particular type of play, you know, maybe lining up the cars or the trains or they're obsessed with Thomas and they've Googled it to see if it's an issue and the first thing that's come up is autism. So can you tell us a bit about 
the red flags. If you're a parent out there listening, what should you be looking out for and um, what would you suggest they do next? Okay. So the red flags would be different depending on the age of the child and also in terms of their general level of intelligence and, and awareness. So the one of the core features, if you like, that bundles it all together is being kind of locked in your own world. So parents will often use that term and that's perhaps one of the first things they recognise in, in a very in a toddler or, or a, an infant, is that their child isn't responding to them in the same way. So perhaps not smiling when they smile, uh, making noises when they make noises, not being able to share simple games like peekaboo, or or engaging in their own world activities. So it might be staring at something, it might be repetitively tapping or banging something, and for that to take preference over getting involved with their parents or their, their siblings. As kids grow older, it's more about how you communicate and it's more about how typical games and typical activities are shaped by having autism. So it may be what we talked about earlier about pointing, about using what we call referencing. So getting people involved in your activity and then being able to change your activity according to what someone's come and helped you with. So a mum will, might um, sit down with her child and try and read a book with them and a young person on the spectrum might not see that as an interesting activity or might only stay and show an interest when their particular areas of interest are being discussed and then they'll move away. So that area of persisting with activities beyond their own interests is, a, is an area of difficulty. And in terms of the repetitive behaviours, quite rightly, you talked about lining up as one of the things that we commonly see. We often see kids who will over-focus on something so they may look at a toy in a strange way, perhaps spinning the wheels of a car or perhaps repeating the same play again and again and not extending it because that, we know that kids use play as their way of exploring the world. And so these children are more exploring their own sensory needs or perhaps their own needs for repetitiveness. The other thing that sometimes people will notice is a really strong need for routines and having things done a particular way. And often one of the commonest things we see is that children have a very restricted diet so that they really only want to eat a particular thing. And this can be not uncommon in toddlers. They often learn that you can have an impact on your family by refusing to eat certain <laughs> foods. But I think as with children on the spectrum, this is a heightened response and it becomes comes down to only presenting food a particular way or being very limited in the brands or the choices of foods that a child will will eat. And it can be quite problematic for families. I think it's important to, for people listening there as well to note that lots of these behaviours happen at different ages and stages through growth and development and childhood and can be part of very typical development. But as you say, Deb, it's really when things start to become perhaps a bit more entrenched or more causing more problems for the family or you feel like this is something that's continuing and not going away. Maybe you're seeing multiple different aspects of these sorts of things that are all kind of sitting together. Or it's just really affecting the way your child is able to get on in the world that you might think, okay, this this may mean that we need to think about considering um, some help and a diagnosis perhaps could be explored. What should I as a parent do if I have these concerns? Who should I speak to and how is the diagnosis made? I think there are a number of ports of call. I would suggest that perhaps if you're regularly meeting with your maternal and child health nurse or your GP to discuss it first with them, 
And I probably would like to see a, a referral being made to a paediatrician fairly early on in the process. Um, paediatricians have a really important role in this. They can look at the whole spectrum of your child's abilities and difficulties, put it into a context because they understand normal development, and then decide whether this is something that's outside of that normal range and needs more investigation. In some instances, a paediatrician themselves can make a diagnosis of autism, but usually what they will do then is they will ask other people to be involved. So it might be asking a speech pathologist to be involved in a language assessment or a psychologist to examine behaviour and examine emotional situations for the child, or it might be involving an occupational therapist who can look at sensory processing and look at how a child's feeling when they are perhaps meeting new foods or listening to loud noises or feeling different textures on their skin. So those sensory aspects which also have an impact on autism. Okay, so seeing the GP first, getting a referral to a paediatrician and then getting other people involved in the diagnosis. So in Victoria, that's one way um, of many children getting diagnosed. We also have some multidisciplinary assessment teams scattered throughout Victoria, which you lead here at RCH. Can you tell us about those and which children should be referred to these clinics? So the multidisciplinary teams really are there for the children who need a more comprehensive assessment. And this might mean because they have other conditions. So they might have been previously diagnosed with having a delay in language and then people will want to know whether there's something else such as autism existing as well as that. They might have been diagnosed with ADHD and therefore the autism presents differently um, and it takes a, a team of experts to do that. In the past, um, we used to see most of the children with autism Unfortunately, the capacity to see every child with autism is no longer available, even though there are a number of teams throughout Victoria, as, as you've already mentioned, Lexi. And a multidisciplinary team, multiple meaning lots, and discipline or disciplinary meaning sort of types of skills. So that's a team of people, health professionals, with different skills. Usually, as Deb has talked about, it would include a speech pathologist, perhaps a psychologist, an occupational therapist, a paediatrician, all of those people working together to actually understand a child, to make a diagnosis, and then also to make a plan about how that child um, might be best supported. And I'd like to point out that a child can be well understood, even if everything's not done by the one team. So I think having a good paediatrician who then has a network of those kind of, of allied health staff that they work typically with can lead to a really good assessment as well. So I don't think that multidisciplinary assessments are the only way to achieving a good result for children. But I do take your point about planning too. I think the plan that comes out of an assessment is really the most important part because a proper understanding of a child, understanding their thinking skills, where their thinking level is, understanding how their language works for them, whether they have what we call core language problems. So that's problems in understanding just the basics of, of listening, understanding language and being able to speak, or whether they have more what we call pragmatic language difficulties, which is where you have good core language, but your ability to use your language in a social situation is impacted. So not being able to ask for help, not being able to express your ideas, not being able to respond when people are conversing with you, not being able to follow a, a topic. Uh, not being able to shift away 
easily and change things. So those are the issues that a speech pathologist can help to understand as well. And then, Deb, what are your thoughts about whether a formal diagnosis is necessary? I get asked that question all the time by parents. Do we need to go down this path? How's it going to help my child? I don't want to use a label. What are your thoughts? I think people in the past were very scared of labels. I think now um, it's clearer the, the role that a label can have. And for me, the role a label has is a better understanding of a child. It, a label really is only a shorthand way of trying to come to grips with what might be an issue for a person. So they aren't necessarily things that need to be used with everybody. So I don't think you should go around and tell everybody in in the world that your child has autism. I think they need to be used selectively. So it might be a really important thing to share with schools, with the therapists who are involved or with doctors, but they don't necessarily need to be used throughout. The role of the label points to this issue that a child is going to have ongoing difficulties and that we need to be mindful that come times of transition, come times of increased social stress, that they just might not be able to meet those demands and they're going to need extra support. So having that label warns you about those needs. It also perhaps will give you a chance to feel more certain in your own mind about where a child is going. So there's a lot of information we now have on prognosis about how children will develop with autism and we can then sort of meet their needs as they go. I find with families that there's a a real range of how people feel about a formal diagnosis from one, I guess, end of the spectrum, to use the word spectrum in a different sense, where parents might feel quite strongly that they they really need that, that diagnosis to get a sense of how they can understand all of this. They might feel like, is it about me and the way I'm parenting? You know, I'm trying all these things and nothing seems right. I just can't understand things. And then when they see and reach a place of a diagnosis of autism, they feel like everything's so much clearer and they can have a context and a framework and understand maybe what the future might look like. It might help them to plan. They also feel like they might feel a bit more empowered about accessing help for their child. And for those families, the diagnosis is really powerful. And then right down the other end of the range, sometimes I find families are really quite clear that they're not ready for a diagnosis, that they feel the idea that a label might be attached to their child means this is something that is maybe not going to go away, that it's going to be lifelong and it's really hard for them to adjust to the that as a concept and there's grief attached to that and a lot that they have to process. Sometimes they might say, oh, okay, I understand we need to do this, but I don't want anyone to know. I don't want the school to know. I don't want the kindergarten to know. And they really feel concerned about stigma and what this diagnosis might create that might be challenging for their child's journey. So I feel, and I'm sure, Deb, you have lots of similar experiences, but that it's really very much about each family and child and thinking a diagnosis is another tool in the way we can help support this child and using it to work with them to get the best for their child. But I think one of the most important points for parents to to know is that intervention and therapies can start without a diagnosis. So speech pathology, occupational therapy, social skills, it's really important. 
As soon as you or your doctors recognise that there's some concerns with your child's development, that intervention starts. And I think you can do some really good work for a child while you are holding the idea that this child might have autism. But the work you do will help regardless of whether they have autism or not. So if you're helping a child to learn to speak and converse properly and to enjoy play with other children and to develop skills in in being out there in the community, develop skills in understanding their own emotional reactions and being able to manage those emotional reactions more easily, those are all skills that we could all use. So they will help children with autism, but they'll help if the diagnosis is not autism. It's really important to remember the family's role in in helping their child. So it's not all about going to therapy every week. It's you know, skills that parents, that we as parents can learn on how to help our children's development. And I think it's also important to remember to focus on the positives and the strengths of that child because we can get hung up on what our children can't do or what their difficulties are. But every child has amazing strengths um, and we've really got to find those strengths and work with them as well. And I sort of certainly see it as a balance. It's a balance between recognising those wonderful strengths and perhaps encourage them because I think... One of the things I see, having worked for a long time in this area, is that sometimes those those strengths and those interests can turn into a really valuable long-term part of the child's life. So young people who have had good IT skills, who go on to work on web design or, or who are good at drawing and, and have become artists in later life. One of the very positive things about having autism is sometimes that intensity of focus and being able to really concentrate on something and understand the details of it leads to a, 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 a very good academic ability in particular areas. So I think be mindful of those skills, but also be mindful that a child's development needs to be balanced so that having help to actually bring up the social skills so that the child could then use their academic or, or, or other talents to the best uh, achieve their potential in the long run. And that's really that sense, isn't it, of difference and diversity, which is an important and beautiful change that we're seeing now in language and the way we talk about people, children and individuals, rather than disability. So disability obviously exists where people might have difficulty functioning in certain ways and there's a role for that as a concept. But a lot of the time it's really important and powerful when we're thinking about children and people on the spectrum to think about their differences and the diversity um, because that helps us to see the strengths as well. So when we talk about a team who helps a child and a family who's um, been diagnosed with autism or has features of autism, who are the main people involved and what are their roles? So I think it depends a bit on the child and it's very much based on the child's needs, also the family's needs. So the usual combination is a psychologist to help with a child's understanding of their own emotions and dealing with their own uh, perhaps challenging behaviour. There might be a speech pathologist who will help the child to develop their, their language and their communication skills. There might be an occupational therapist who can work with a child to develop their play, but also look at the sensory needs of the child and, and give people in the community and the family an understanding of where sensory difficulties might arise and giving them advice on how to avoid those sensory difficulties. I think one other interesting thing that I'm just going to throw out there for for discussion, Deb, because I'm keen to hear your perspective on it. What about situations where parents, as they're going through the journey of identifying that their child might have autism, starts to reflect on some of their own 
if you like, tendencies or concerns or challenges and might be thinking about a diagnosis for themselves. So I guess there's a couple of things wrapped up in that, Deb. One is, can you tell us a bit about the cause of autism and in particular the role of genetics? And then the other part being for parents listening who might be thinking, oh yeah, that, that's me, where should they go for help? It's a very interesting question, and I think it's one that's still evolving. So as of this year, um, I think we we know that autism is a strongly genetic condition, but the actual genetic profile for every child will be be different. So some families will have more than one child with, with autism, and when they reflect on their own extended family, they'll often identify people who could possibly be on the spectrum as well. And you're quite right, there are parents who sort of will say, oh, well, if he, if my child has autism, then I have autism as well. And that can be a, a, an interesting, not to say very, very challenging time for, for a parent, partly because sometimes they feel guilty about having passed their traits down to their child. But I'd perhaps tilt it around another way and say that parents who have had the experience of living with autism are in a really good place to guide their child through life so that they can then help them in future. That gets around the question you asked about about getting a diagnosis. It's a little bit harder as an adult to get a diagnosis. It's usually done more by psychologists who are specialising in the areas and occasionally by psychiatrists will, will do the same. I've actually had a lot of families uh, that this has happened and the parents have recognise that they have a lot of the features of autism and they choose to go down that diagnostic path and get a, a formal diagnosis because understanding themselves a bit better as an adult has been incredibly helpful. You know, it can be helpful for different people at different stages in their life. Not everyone gets diagnosed very young. And Lexi, there's an interesting area too in terms of the diagnosis for girls. Mm. So what we're often seeing is that girls can get diagnosed later than boys. And sometimes that's because girls are a bit more socialised to doing things that bring them into the social world so that their their symptoms don't show up. And we know that girls can can mask or camouflage their symptoms, but that comes at a cost. So I think what you're you're saying and what you sometimes see with, with adults who are thinking about the diagnosis of autism is they've managed in the social world, but it's taken a lot more effort. Mm. And that effort has often come about with a higher level of anxiety, with a higher level of stress. I saw a a young lady who told me that for every hour she spends with people, she needs three hours to recover and relax afterwards, which is a huge amount of effort that she's putting in to be with people in the community. So she can do it, but it's really taking its toll. Mm. And as you said, there may be a lot of anxiety and other mental health issues that come with not having had a diagnosis or being a little bit different. And so sometimes we do see parents who've been diagnosed with other conditions. And as you say, it does come as a relief when they see that their child has autism and they can then put their own situation into a different light. What do you see as the positives? Look, I think there's positives with all children, I think, yeah. isn't there? But I think one of the things I often hear is that as, as very young babies, autistic children can be a delight to look after because they often are more quiet, they're less demanding, they're often quite satisfied with doing something on their own and they're not asking for a lot of parent time and input. I think as kids get older, particularly in school age, young people on the spectrum often have really intense interests that can lead them into some lovely areas of exploration and and sometimes really gifted 
understanding of, of different concepts. You know, you have young people with dinosaurs who've learnt to identify and name every dinosaur that you can imagine, who then probably progress to, to having a more sort of scientific bent when it comes to their development. So those are the kind of, some of the positives. I think there's nothing about having autism that stops you from being a warm and caring person. It just means that having autism it's sometimes a little bit difficult to understand other people, but we do know that children with autism can be just as as gentle and thoughtful if they understand the way they're meant to interact and the way they're meant to approach other people. And I think what's really important there as well, Deb, is there's sometimes a bit of a misunderstanding or, or, or a misconception that people with autism, children and adults, have a preference for being alone when, in fact, loneliness is a really big challenge for these people sometimes because it's not so much that that's their preference. They, it's more that it can be more challenging for them to actually seek and find that social interaction in a way that works for them and whoever they're interacting with. And it can start from a really early age. It can start from simple things like how do you approach someone in the playground and ask them to play with you? Or how do you start a conversation? And so sometimes that will lead to some people withdrawing mm. and, if you like, isolating themselves, which I think is unfortunate because just sometimes with a little bit of help, people can be much more engaged. I'd like to give you an example, if I could, about a young lady I know who who really struggled in this area. And her mum said, well, why don't you go up to people and say, hi, how are you? My name is... And ask them about their pets because her special interest was her cat. And so after she asked someone about her pets, she'd then talk about her cat, which is her comfort area and one that she could really easily converse in. That young lady is now in her late 20s and she has brilliant conversations with people. She is active in the community and I think, you know, she hasn't looked back. So sometimes those simple help to, if you like, bridge the difficulties can create some really positive results. Absolutely. So, Deb, I think that's all we have time for today, but it's made us realise there is so much to talk about with autism and autism spectrum, and hopefully we'll be able to go a bit further and deep dive into some of the nuances, really talking about communication and some of the skills that children can learn to, to help at school and in the playground. But today we just wanted to start by talking a bit about what autism is, about how to go about getting a diagnosis, and about who might be involved in in the team with the family to manage the autism. So thank you so much for coming in. We've got a lot of amazing resources that we're going to link in our show notes today. And, you know, we'd really like to find out more from you, the listeners, what you would like to hear about on further podcasts with regards to autism and autism spectrum. And if you've got one word of wisdom to leave our listeners with today, Deb, what would that be? Um, don't be discouraged to keep positive because there are a lot of supports out there and finding your tribe, finding perhaps other families in the community who have the same experience of nurturing a child with autism, they're all positive things that will will see you through all of this. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to follow us on your preferred podcast platform and press subscribe. And thanks for listening. Information provided in this podcast is general in nature and is intended to support, not replace, discussions with your doctor or healthcare professional.
If you are concerned about your child, please consult your local healthcare professional for further advice.